Welcome to the Perennial Podcast, where we reflect on wisdom from modern life, from ancient philosophy, and spiritual traditions. Each episode is based on timeless principles and practices designed to help you live your highest good. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Welcome to the Perennial Podcast. Thank you for listening. In this episode, I connect with my friend Matt Malcolm, who produces one of my favorite newsletters called The Pocket Philosopher. I encourage you to check it out at pocketphilosopher.substack.com. In the conversation, we discuss the wisdom of writing out your ideas, exploring different disciplines and traditions, the connection between compassion and wisdom, and much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Please welcome the wise and gracious Matt Malcolm. I was hoping we could get started around, you know, the idea behind the the pocket philosopher. If you could, and we chatted a little bit about it last time we connected, but you know, around what are you what are you after? What are you searching for? What are you what are you looking to provide? Yeah, I think as a project, it, it started very, very personal, just as a just as a way to process externally process really some ideas that had been sitting on the shelf for a long time, but haven't didn't really have an avenue uh, for expression or for development. Um, and I've definitely found that as I connect with more people, it's moving away from a personal project to something we're doing communally, which is really cool. But um, you know, I think over the last four or five years, I've had a, a pretty, I think, substantial kind of deconstructive experience in my worldview, starting in a very, I would say, um, kind of like monolithic, uh, uh, fundamentalist, uh, very uh, exclusive way of looking at the world through kind of a certain faith tradition. Uh, and slowly the walls of that breaking down and moving into a more, I would say, healthy, generous, compassionate, empathetic, inclusive of way of approaching life. And, and I had studied philosophy in college. And so I had had all of these notes and all of this sort of knowledge just sitting there that it didn't really have anywhere to take root because I was so inundated kind of in this other worldview that I, I just, I was afraid really to absorb it. So I handled it at a distance out of curiosity, but I didn't really engage it. And so uh, as I've left college and started living life and raising a family, I found that the old worldview wasn't quite robust enough to uh, <laughs> handle the realities of life. And so basically I needed to go back, brush off all of the philosophical knowledge that was presented to me and actually work it into my life. And so uh, the pocket philosopher is me doing that and then starting to share that and do that with, with other folks like you. So, Well, I, I love it. I, I've definitely enjoyed it in the short time that I've been, uh, been exploring your work. I, I'm curious you know, there's this idea of writing things down, whether it's something like yourself where you're actually disseminating it to, to readers, but just the idea of writing it down, having a, a big role in providing some clarity around your thinking or your views. How has that been for you? Yeah, that's a really great point. I haven't thought about or reflected on a lot. Um, but that's abs absolutely true. Um, in the sense that when it was presented to me and it was part of maybe getting tested or just kind of like moving the information through in a, uh, kind of detached way, it didn't stick. Um, and I knew it was there. I knew where to get it, but it, it didn't really change me or affect me. And then when the script flipped and all of a sudden I needed, I needed this knowledge, um, suddenly it was like, um, I need a way to be able to actually work it in to, to my, to my life. Um, <clears throat> and I knew that if I wrote for people, I would feel like I had to do it. You know, it would, <laughs> I would be like accountable to all these people who are looking at it. And so it would keep me honest. And that was like, my first challenge was, can I just show up and write five days a week about philosophy and about these things that I'm, that I'm always thinking about that I know are important, but I never have time to actually engage with. Um, and a comment that I've made to my family a few times since I've, to your point, as I've started doing this, is I don't think I've ever had any routine or discipline or practice that has changed me as profoundly and as quickly as this has. Um, because it is one thing to read or 
or, you know, tangentially sort of notice or think about an idea, but to actually have to logically wrestle out what I'm thinking and overlay it with and, and understand the argument that someone else has left for me to, to wrestle with. Um, you know, that's kind of one of the basic concepts of philosophy is this idea of charity, which is making sure that you understand the best possible version of an argument before you engage it. Um, and what this, what this allows you to do is you, you talk less, you listen more, and you really work to, to, to understand what someone means or what they might mean prior to agreeing with it or disagreeing with it or tearing it apart or adding to it. And it, it really respects uh, both the idea and the person that originated it. Um, and so knowing that charity was going to be an important sort of, um, uh, I don't know what you'd say, like, you know, cultural aspect of, of this project uh, or a value, that's probably the best word, uh, knowing that, that that charity was going to be an important value. It was like, hey, I not only can I have to show up every day, but I actually have to know what they mean and then give myself an honest sort of attempt at integrating it in some way. And, and it's almost like that's a depth of self uh, conversation and communal conversation that I, I had never experienced. And so it's absolutely, it's changing the way I think it's changing the way that I respond. It's changing the way I approach problems. Um, and it's weird because it's totally self-imposed. Like nobody's telling me to do it. You know, <laughs> of all the things that I've done, uh, you know, West Point, the military, whatever, all these things are trying to make you into something. Uh, nothing quite worked, like just choosing to show up and, and write about philosophy every day. The the topics you cover are a wide range of philosophical and spiritual traditions from uh, from the East to the West. Where does this, and I would call it, it seems like an insatiable curiosity, you know, come from? Uh, pr- probably the, uh, the honest response would be trauma or something like that, you know, some like that. Uh, drive that I have to fix something that I don't even understand. Um, so that that aside, which is probably probably more true than I even care to understand. Um, I think really it's that um, for so long the tradition that I grew up in had labeled all of this knowledge as um, uh, it was it was it was bad. It was wrong. We weren't allowed to touch it. You know, uh, just engaging with it, the mere idea of mentally assenting to something like this. Um, it would have been sinful, you know, and it would have been uh, an indicator that I was backsliding out of the faith and it was dangerous and people would have been worried about me. Um, and so I think a, really on a superficial level, it's just something I've always been curious about, but could never engage. And now I can, and it's so freeing. Um, and every time that I, I learn something new, I become, I feel like a more empathetic person, a more integrated, like I like myself more, <laughs> the more that I, I learn about and then when I get, when I meet new people, I'm really capable of understanding maybe where they're coming from in a way that I couldn't before. Um, so I think it's that's probably definitely a portion of it. And the other is that I don't know why. There's just this. I've always been like this, um, and I whatever tools I was able or allowed to have, I, I've always kind of been asking the same series of questions. Um, and at at the, at the basis, I, I think my kind of um, my primary driving curiosity is, is that why, why is it like this? Um, and so that, you know, there are so many, I think problems that, that whether it's our planet or we as a species face, they have, I feel like pretty fundamentally simple, concrete, objective answers, but this, this idea of working together, of collaborating, even though that's our greatest strength as a species, it somehow is at the same time, like our greatest obstacle. And I've always been fascinated of why is it, why is it so hard to do the empathetic thing, to do the compassionate thing, to do the thing that um, will be best for our future, for our our kids like that, you know, making those kinds of decisions. Um, And as you work back from that, um, this isn't a new problem. I've been reading like Plato's Republic recently. And I mean, he's wrestling with the same problems, but we live in these, in this, these paradoxes and there's an art to making all of it work together. And I have never felt reconciled about it. And so I just, I always want to know, and I'm always pushing maybe some, maybe if I, maybe if I turn over this leaf, I'll find something, or maybe somebody has the answer, uh, or maybe this, this culture or this tradition knew about it and they left it for, for us to rediscover. So. You know, what I'm, I'm really curious about here, here lately. I'd love to get your thoughts on. Um, there's all of these different, 
philosophical, spiritual traditions, I, I tend to think of them as some sort of, you know, path to wisdom, some sort of wisdom tradition. And it's like, it seems like the commonality of all of these wisdom traditions is becoming more compassionate, becoming more empathetic. It's that idea. There's an author that I like, um, Donald Robertson. He wrote an article on on Medium, How Compassionate is Stoicism. It's a long article and really makes this case of Stoicism being this path to compassion. Yeah, yeah. But I, I tend to think in terms of like these wisdom traditions, it it almost has to be if it's a path to wisdom. You think of a Buddhism or even just a even just um, nothing related to any sort of spiritual tradition, but just a philosophical path to becoming wise, you know, that sage at the end of that or that project is about empathy and compassion. Any, like, how, how do you think about that or how might that be wrong? No, I, I mean, that's like, that is a, that's a monumental question. I mean, the best way possible. Um, as you were talking, my mind was splitting down like seven different <laughs> paths, you know. Um, I think, you know, at least coming from the approach of, of the pocket philosopher as a project, thinking about that question and having noticed, like you're saying, in my curiosity, noticed that same trend. I, I, the, what comes to mind first, there's a quote from Stanley Kubrick, the uh, probably maybe, I mean, really famous director, but 2001, a space odyssey, you know, kind of the, his fundamental sort of thesis. Um, he, he says something to the effect of, of humans are uh, um, an unstable species you know, on one hand, we've got the capacity for sending people to the moon and, uh, you know, doing these incredibly uh, intricate life-saving surgeries, uh, you know, forgiving people who have harmed us. Uh, you know, these are really difficult things that we've done and we've done them through cooperation and overcoming, I think, certain inhibitions in ourselves. But then on the other side, we can do things like, um, you know, ki- kill each other or hurt one another or destroy cities or, you know, uh, support systems that are hurting our neighbors. Um, and we can also react and rage and violence and we can do things and we almost feel possessed. Like, how did I just react like that? Uh, and that kind of speaks, I think, to our sort of like these base instincts. And then we have such a capacity, you know, for such noble endeavors and, and such stoicism, right? Um, and so it's amazing that somehow we're unstable in the sense that somehow we can be both of those things at the same time. Sometimes one of us, like I can be that person in the, in the same moment, in the same two minute window, I can express a propensity for both of those things. And I, I, I think that's, that's fascinating, but it's also like frightening, you know, to, to a certain degree. And so, um, you know, if you think about like a, like a Joseph Campbell, like the monomyth, uh, just this this kind of process that is innate to all of us, this, there's this natural drive to leave what we know, overcome some, some really deep challenges, go to the dark night of the soul, find something new, and then essentially experience a rebirth. And that rebirth always speaks to our higher, uh, our higher or, you know, uh, (laughs) more stable um, potential than kind of some of these, these base instincts that we have uh, that, uh, that, that are reactive or, Maybe I would say that they're unconscious, you know, they're patterns, they're addictive thought patterns, they're addictive reactions, addictive behaviors, uh, addictive relationships, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, it, it's innate in all of us to sort of, uh, it, it's a really complicated endeavor. I think what we're trying to do is transcend and arrive at this place that we know, we know that, you know, up above the clouds, we've got this potential but you can't transcend and become that without also fully integrating your, you know, your animalness, your, your instincts, your, um, your propensity for, for all of those things that maybe we don't like or aren't culturally acceptable. And the way that you do that is I think you've got to go through the crucible experience. You know, you've got to go through the dark night. You've got to go through the hell, the underworld. Um, and so I think the reason that I, I'm sorry, I'm starting to wonder, I don't think I have an answer for this, but like you, I'm, I'm noticing that trend towards compassion and empathy and I sense that that once once we begin to develop the capacity for that to express charity about their opinions, kind of like um, kind of like we were saying, you know, in the beginning, um, 
to, to be able to hold somebody's ideas and positions and separate that from them and not, you know, reject an idea without rejecting a person and being able to do some of those, those, those are indicators, I think of that transcendence. Um, and, and, you know, if someone, if someone, uh, almost claims to, I have empathy and compassion and I'm enlightened and I'm all these things, uh, but, but they deny parts of themselves, you know, they're in denial about, well, I don't have any of those impulses anymore. or I've overcome that, or I'm completely free of this. You know, I think of like something like a, a, you know, like the 12, the, the 12 step program or something where it's the ownership of, of who you are and your potential for both, for both kinds of behaviors. It's, it's like really important. Um, but it, it just speaks to that, that process. Uh, uh, I, I think the dark night of the soul is like a great way to describe it as many philosophers have, but, um, and so I wonder if, if it's less even that so many of these, these traditions are saying, uh, be empathetic, be compassionate. That's the path to enlightenment. But it, as we all kind of go through this innate drive to transcend, if that's just kind of like where it, it leaves us, you know, where, where it dumps us out. And so regardless of the path that you take there, uh, you find yourself along the way, picking up these, uh, these, these traits, um, and a capacity to become what we know we all want to be. So that was a really long winded answer. I think I'm externally processing it with you. Cause it's a, it's a, re- it's a really interesting question, you know, that I think about without really too much concrete, uh, with a concrete solution. It is. It's kind of fascinating to me, like a, a lot of questions when we embark on a particular path, like whatever that may be, pick your, your discipline, your tradition, what, whatever it may be, you bark on, embark on that path. When we don't really understand what that path is about, like what, you know, why it exists, what, what does it mean to be, to be wise? How does it, I kind of hear as you were describing that towards the end, kind of a connection with the idea of sometimes maybe not grasping for whatever that is. Like it's, um, you know, there's an author I like, uh, Anthony DeMello kind of talks about once you, um, you know, set out on this particular path to be enlightened or be wise, whatever it may be, you know, you've lost it. This idea of, of grasping after, after something. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that makes me think of the, the Taoist principle of Wu Wei, um, which it's like almost impossible to translate into any kind of modern English meaning, but at its core, it's this, it's this, uh, you know, it's action by non-action. It's, uh, kind of sitting in the paradoxical space of knowing that you want something and letting it go trusting that it will return to you. Not as like a, um, not as like a way to cope with lack of control or not, a, not, not of any sense of denial, like, well, we'll see what happens. But with an understanding that if you, if you hold something too closely, kind of psychologically, uh, you'll ruin it. You know, this is the, um, you know, losing the keys on the first day of a new job, um, because you've been f- afraid that you would lose the keys or, you know what, honestly, in this case, being uh, coming into the podcast today at the wrong time because all week I was worried that I was going to have the wrong time. <laughs> like psychologically, like I, I'm just predisposed, right? Um, because I have this goal that I wanted to have this conversation with you because I knew it would lead to, you know, our mutual edification. And I was really focused and had these grand visions of having, you know, some like really great conversation, but there I like, I lost it, you know, and I messed it up and I'm trying to put out a work fire and start talking to you. And uh, there's something about that, that when you hold on to something too tight, um, you know, in, in the Tao Te Ching, uh, which is kind of like the, uh, the, the underpinning text of, of Taoism, uh, it opens with this idea that by simply even naming something, you've lost it. Um, you've ruined it. You've completely destroyed it by trying to explain it. Um, yeah. And so I, I, there's another tradition. Uh, there's some folks in, um, within Christianity, uh, within um, Franciscanism, there, there's one teacher, especially his name's Richard Rohr. Um, I, I, I think we might have spoken about him before, but yeah. um, he calls he calls God uh, the, what what God is as the great allower, uh, the one who allows. Um, and I I don't exactly know what he means by that, but it struck me as that uh, there's wisdom in that in the allowance of of the things. You know, setting on a path of intention, I I want to be more of this, or I know this, or I have an inkling of that. But then allowing it to happen, um, 
and, and almost not needing, not, not needing it to be the way that you want it to happen. And that, I find that, oh my God, I mean, next to impossible, but uh, kind of like, I think you're alluding to the greatest wisdom traditions that I study, especially I think of Taoism where it's really explicit. I mean, that is the path, you know, you allow, you let go uh, and, and you move easy, you move gently um, you go, you kind of go easy with the world. You know, you're not always leaned up against and fighting sort of the next thing and trying to change this or that. Um, yeah. And I, it's, it's so difficult. So difficult. It, it's so interesting how so many things are, are counterintuitive. It's really, it, it doesn't quite make sense unless you maybe detach from it from a second or, you know, look at it from another, uh, perspective. But, um, you know, if, if you look at some of the quotes around happiness, I think uh, Chuang Tzu, perfect happiness is the absence of striving for happiness. And like Tolstoy <laughs> says the same thing. He's kind of in a different way, but he says, if you want to be happy, be, mm-hmm. you know, and, and just these uh, ideas that w- were not really taught in any sort of you know, maybe, maybe you were majoring in, uh, in philosophy, but yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think too many places are, are getting at some of the, the paradox, some of these just counterintuitive ways to, to think about things, which would be, you know, wisdom. Um, I was wondering when you were, you talked a bit in the beginning about this deconstruction. Um, I've heard this idea of, there's like some quake books, you know, there's a, maybe a particular book that you pick up and it really just shakes some, some things up in terms of your worldview. Any uh, particular books like that, that, that come to mind as you were going through that? So it's weird. It's weird. There's actually none for me. Um, If there was one, I think it would be, I think it would be the gospels themselves. uh, New Testament gospels is that, at some point, you can no longer, you know, reconcile the espoused teachings of uh, of the New Testament with the rest of the of the construct, you know, uh, around you. And that I think that was really my first um, sort of like first sense that something was off. And it wasn't in a, like an interpretational thing. I mean, it was it was pretty basic, uh, you know, love of neighbor, um, uh, you know maybe where we put our focus on, um, you know, increasing our love for one another, forgiving our enemies, you know, it's, I mean, so it's something as basic as being in a, in a religious environment that demands of me, uh, sort of like this powerless, uh, contributor financially and of my time and talents and all this, uh, demanding of me that I love my neighbor more while also supporting the war, uh, <laughs> you know, the wars that we're in and saying that we've got to support them and we've got to vote for them and, all, and vote for the people that will perpetuate them and all those kinds of things like basic cognitive dissonance that just with any sort of actual, you know, meaningful reflection, like something like that just can't stand. How can you demand of me based on our teachers, uh, you know, our, the founder of our faith here says, love your enemies. And at one point in Revelation, even there's even this understanding that we love them even unto death, right? Like that's a very common sort of, and it, it, this isn't like, and this isn't like obscure, like Jesus, the founder of the faith died for his enemies at their hands. Right. You know, like this is kind of like the point. Um, and then to, and then to support one of the largest military industrial complexes in, in history, that's just, that's, that's impossible to, to reconcile unless either uh, what we've been taught is wrong or the way that we're acting today is wrong. So that I didn't need, I don't, you know, at some point I didn't need, (laughs) I don't know that I needed like an illumination. In fact, I ran away from people who were, and I think that's probably why I didn't read anything was that I was running away from people that would shed more light on that. Um, There's some, I think, really interesting authors out there. um, Brian McLaren, Brian Zand. Um, There's another newsletter out there by a guy named Josh Scott. That's really good um, in this space. But I found all of these like way after I was on the the deconstructing path and I just needed to know that I wasn't crazy. Somebody else was like me. Um, and, and so really more than a book, I think what really got me was, was starting to engage with people and understand people and empathize with people and hear from people 
who were on the other side of my beliefs. Um, and when I started to get the feedback that the way that the way that uh, my beliefs were animating my life, that that was harming people and not helping them. And that it was kind of based on this very loose kind of metaphysical perspective about the universe. And at its core was this irreconcilable conflict between uh, violence and pacifism and uh, between allowance and um, between demanding that people believe just like me, like that, that was really, that was really the impetus. Um, And then at, at some point the salve was actually, just finding uh, all kinds of traditions. So not even religious traditions, but, you know, um, psychological traditions or like wisdom traditions, like we're talking about philosophical traditions that actually, I think, move us in the direction of becoming a more safe, stable, healthy, inclusive, compassionate, you know, uh, community. Yeah. How do you connect this idea of, I think of that, maybe not grasping to life, you know, as the example you, you talk about in, uh, you know, something you mentioned in studying the Republic, you think of Socrates as someone that didn't necessarily, um, grasp or maybe do things to, to save his life when he could have. And there's many other examples of, it seems, seems very odd, but there's many examples throughout history of, of people that are able to, transcend that grasping for their for their own life to be convicted to whatever you know principles may be in their heart like how do you how do you think about that or make any sense of that a great image uh, for me is um it's a the famous painting the school of athens um if if that means anything to you uh if anyone's listening you google it it's one of the most beautiful i think um, paintings we have from, from antiquity, but it's at the center of the school of, you know, it's all of the great philosophers and scientists and thinkers of, of, of really the Greco Roman era. Um, but at the center is Plato and Aristotle. And, um, you know, Plato has his finger kind of pointed up Mm. and Aristotle has his hand out stretched out like this to the earth, kind of like uh, grounding himself. And, and it, it was this really masterful way of illuminating the conversation of, of Plato and Aristotle, which is that, that Plato was always pointing up the ladder to the world of forms, um, you know, thinking that kind of shadows of the real and the real is somewhere else. And really in, in, in many, in many, uh, in many ways, Plato is, he kind of captured and then injected into the Western psyche, this idea that, that the perfect and the beautiful and the good is actually somewhere else. And we have to strive for it. And, and Aristotle had a vision of, of the earth that was, it was beautiful as it is, very, very naturalist. And he, I mean, he, he would be found often, you know, in, in the low tide, uh, finding crabs and little, you know, little sea urchins to dissect. And, and he would just spend, you know, months understanding how they functioned and what, what was inside and comparing them to us and, uh, he just was enamored with the physical world and he thought this was it. And so, in, you know, in the school of Athens, you've got the tension right there that the better world's up there and, you know, we're reflections of it. Um, you know, so you see this like in his, in Plato's allegory of the cave, which is in the Republic is that, that idea, you know, and Plato was so, or excuse me, Aristotle was so focused on, on the natural world. And, and so I think that there's a, that, that there's a conversation that, that, that his, has, ne- has never ceased to happen really since those two, uh, at least in the Western world. Um, and uh, what we see, I think, is an attempt to, to like reconcile, reconcile what you're talking about. But I think for me, depending on what, what's happening in my life, some, sometimes I identify with, it, with Aristotle <laughs> and sometimes I'm completely, you know, in Plato's um, in Plato's camp. And I'm like, what are we doing? Focusing on this. We need to be looking, you know, outside of us to, f- to find the answer, to find the inspiration or whatever. It's interesting to me. I, I tend to get excited around this idea of uncertainty or not knowing being really important. How do you think about that in terms of grounding, maybe your upbringing and different traditions? There's a ton of certainty from many yeah. people on how things are and, and why they're that way. Um, 
but I, I've been reading uh, the Socratic method, a new book that came out. It's like a, a practitioner's handbook, but just this idea of asking questions and, and getting more comfortable in this thing of just not knowing. It's um, the, I get the first thing that comes to, there's a great book I read a couple years ago. Um, it's by a guy named Kent Dobson. Um, it's called bitten by a camel. And he, he was actually, he inherited a, a mega church. Um, he was the son of a mega church pastor. Was it, was a mega church pastor uh, out in somewhere in like Michigan or something like that for, for years. And then started having this experience that we're talking about uh, where I need something more robust. Um, and so left really, uh, you know, his faith tradition and, and ventured out. Um, and it started for him when he went, he was kind of having a crisis of faith and he, he went to uh, visit like a holy site in Jerusalem or something. And he was really trying to usher in this kind of like profound spiritual experience. And in the middle of just trying to get lost and like trying to feel it, uh, a camel that was nearby came out and just like bit him. Um, and he's got this huge, you know, on his arm and, uh, he was just like, you know, kind of like WTF, like this is supposed to be this holy moment. And this like freaking camel just like bit me. Uh, and it was this weird kind of crescendo moment for him that was just like, I don't, why am I being so serious about this? Like, I don't think this is the thing to, to take seriously, you know? Um, and, uh, and so, but in, in his book though, he, uh, he, you know, he's a huge intellect. He's got like, like a, couple PhDs and masters, you know, one of those people is just always studying, always aggregating. And so, um, in his studies after this, uh, I can't remember what he, he had like changed over to studying, but he found quite a few, um, examples, especially within, um, the, the Christian desert mystic tradition that their, their goal, a lot of these, these like kind of like hermit, uh, monk like societies in, in, in the earliest days of Christianity, their goal was actually descent into hell. The concept of hell that we have today is kind of this weird mixture of like first centuries or Astrianism, uh, some Greek myth, a um, couple of other things kind of gets in the middle ages, kind of gets created into the soup. It's, it's, it's a really weird story that doesn't really have anything to do with, you know, it doesn't make you a better person. It, it was a, it was a story that emerged, but a lot of these early monks were actually looking, they wanted to descend into hell because they, they, they didn't see hell necessarily as a place you go for, getting separated from God, getting punished. It was the trial, what we were talking about earlier. It was the sort of the, the universal monument. There was an awareness, like we have to go through that. We need that. There was an appetite for it. And there were quite a few people. Um, I can't remember the name. There was one monk in, in, in specific outside of uh, somewhere in like the Egyptian desert. And he said something to the effect of the path to that, the path to the dark night of the soul, the path to hell is, I don't know. And it's so important. So it sends you, it sends you into this like dark, uncertain, scary experience. But if you're, if you're acclimated and if you're oriented correctly, that's actually the journey that you want to be on. And so if you can find yourself there, if you can orient yourself there enough, you can actually, I don't know your way into a really dark, uncomfortable, maybe even depressive state. But at the bottom, you'll find the staircase towards the, the place that you want to be. And so in a lot of ways, everything that you want, uh, if, you know, anybody who's asking any of these questions, anything that they want is on the other side of, I don't know. Um, and psychologically to be uncertain means that you have to have a sense of self that isn't dependent, I think on external confirmation. So I don't need somebody else to tell me if I'm right. I don't even really know what right is. That doesn't matter. My, and, and I think this is really the big problem with fundamentalist faith is that they conflate identity and acceptance with all of that identity, acceptance of identity with what you believe mentally. And so you have to get it right or you're rejected. And so it becomes this very like traumatizing sort of very thin line that you have to figure out how to, how to navigate. And I think what the, I don't know path into the downward descent, what that does for you is it, is it breaks that mold and it shows you that you're safe, that, that you have a sense of self and a sense, a locus of identity that isn't connected to what you think, what you believe. And you realize I can have thoughts that I don't have to identify with. And I can think about things that I don't have. And so, well, if that's the case, if I'm not identified with what I believe or what I think, then what am I identified with? 
And that's, that's really where the interesting work happens. And I think that is actually the pit of hell is in the way that we're talking about it, which is if I'm not, if I'm not my um, addiction, if I'm not my fear, uh, if I'm not my success, if I'm not the sum of my relationships, uh, if I'm not this social, if I'm not all of these other things, then, then actually what am I? And wrestling with that question is, I think, really at the heart of this whole journey. But on the other side of it, uh, and I think you think of someone um, like Socrates that could say, I don't know comfortably because his locus of identity was not attached <laughs> uh, to what he believed. Um, and I think that's where it's, it's from Socrates and the early Greek thinkers that we get these ideas of charity, uh, where we get these ideas of, I can, I can temporarily identify with this idea and assume the best of it because I'm, I can take it off when it's done because I know who I am and it's not what I think. So that whole process, I mean, that's like, that's one, I think, strata of consciousness to another. Uh, And it's very uncomfortable. But I also think that, I think that I don't know is the key that unlocks the door to it. I I think so as well. I I wonder if it needs to be like a traditional dark night of the soul. I mean, I I tend to try to think um, often not very well in like the practical everyday, just daily mundane, you know, stuff, even just the idea of asking, how might I be wrong? Or, you know, I think of uh, just this idea of, of not knowing it comes up in various different, whether it's like a Montaigne, a Socrates, you know, the list goes on like various different paths, like kind of come to that. But I don't know. Isn't it? I tend to think of it a way of um, seeing like some sort of both and to go to like the Richard Rohr or any sort of like paradox and polarity. You're thinking this one particular path. How might I be wrong? What do I know that, you know, you need something to loosen up on that particular thing to see the other pole you know, how can you pole vault yourself over or get some sort of broader perspective? Just that question of what do I know, which supposedly Montaigne, you know, had like carved up on his ceiling and, you know, said every, every day, what do I know? What do I know? How do you think about that? I'm sure that word comes up or that question comes up for you in, in daily life a, a little bit. What? It's interesting. I mean, this goes back, I feel like, to one of the very first things we were talking about with Wu Wei, which is, you know, I, it's much easier, I think, to talk about some of these experiences that we've had in retrospect, because we can brush off all of the, the things that, that maybe don't matter uh, when we're going back and looking and trying to mine some lessons or, how, you know, what happened? What was the next step? And so it's easy to make kind of this clean loop. You know, I started here and then all of this happened and I went down and then I felt like this. And after that happened, I came up and I transcended, you know? Yeah. And that is very, that's very clean. And I think to your point, um, it's actually maybe not that, uh, maybe not actually that universal or repetitive. Uh, Again, I think it's much easier just to talk about in the, (laughs) in the past. And I think what so much of uh, whether it's academic work or philosophical work, it's a, it's a lot of just trying to find the commonalities of those journeys that, that people have taken and map them just so we have, we're just oriented a little bit, you know? Um, and I, like Joseph Campbell, I think is like the preeminent example of that, of, of just saying, where, where are these, uh, where are these cultures or these ideas, <clears throat> where have they created the same idea, even though they had no interaction with each other uh, and there was no common uh, source of information that would have led them to develop the same idea yet. They did. How did that happen? Um, and so understanding that, okay, beneath all of that, there are just some, some basic sort of like human instincts that lead us to do very similar things to behave in very similar ways. So again, in retrospect, that that's kind of easy. Um, but to your point, yeah, I think if you're starting on the path and you say, okay, I'm going to, I don't know my way to enlightenment. Um, you know, in a sense, I feel like what happens is you then become attached to this idea, to this path, to this way of being. Uh, there's no, you don't know, you can't allow things to happen. There's no room for surprise and discovery. You think that you're going to sort of earn your way there and <laughs> control your way. You're going to have this very controlled descent into hell and you're going to come out, you know, the shining example and all oh, that was tough, but I did it, you know? And, um, and I think everyone's, 
everyone's uh, rock bottom where they feel that sense of, if I'm not this, then what am I? I mean, that, that formula is going to be so different for them and the way that maybe they even think about it, but the way they interpret it, the way they talk about it. Um, yeah. And so I think that, um, you know, I think the, the work of philosophy is simply trying to sort of like map the commonalities and, and just the willingness to, to not know, I think, and to, and to abandon your certainty is some, somehow pushes you, pushes you in the right direction. Now, what happens after that and how you'll remember it and <laughs> what it will feel like probably varies as much as our fingerprints. But um, it's that the episode, you know, what the what the a lot of philosophers would call the epistemic humility, the awareness that there's things that I don't know uh, and that I might never know. And I need to, I need to like, let that lead forward before me. Epistemic humility needs to walk before me. When you start to integrate and practice that, it, I think you'd be hard pressed not to find yourself on some kind of, you know, spiritual or regenerative journey of, of some kind, you know? I, I think it's a great question of also just managing our everyday desires. You know, I mean, there's nearly every tradition talks about desire not necessarily the path to happiness, but removal of, of desire from Buddhism, Stoicism, obviously much, much of, of that. Um, but just even the idea of, I want a new car, I want a promotion, I want a new relationship, any sort of daily desire that comes up, you know, some sort of question, well, what do, what do I know? Like, how do I, you know what I mean? You really don't know that any of those things are going to bring you know, any, any greater joy in your life. It's, it's uncertain. The, I think the, the paradoxical side, right. Is that um, there, there's a, a famous quote. I don't actually know who to attribute it to. I've seen a few different people, but that whatever, whatever you deny yourself will become your prison, you know? And so that like, there's this other side of it that well, let me tame my desires. Uh, let me, let, let me, let me just not partake in that. And then it can never become a problem. You know, something like that. Then, then it becomes it becomes this prison in which uh, you're sort of obsessed, and it, it's like the Wu Wei principle: like I'm so focused on not doing this thing that all I'm doing is this thing. You know, uh, it it just it dominates my life. And so again, it, I think it's um, it, I, I think that like so, so often I find that whether I'm thinking about philosophy or, or religion, really in general, that when I say those words, a lot of times it comes to mind. You know, is the sage or or the um, uh, you know, the monk sitting down, taming, taming it, the, the self, controlling the self, having absolute control. And I, I think that that's really almost the image. And so whether that's the, the stoic warrior image, you know, that we promote in the military, or if it's uh, kind of the quintessential, you know, uh, fervent religious person, they, what, what they're representing is this idea of self-mastery, self-control. But I think actually what they're experiencing um, is the release of the self the abandonment of the self, you know, the surrender of the self in the sense that um, uh, kind of the driving energy it isn't let me control this. It's let me allow this, let me let this go. And I think what we find is that when we allow, uh, we don't have nearly as many desires to tame as we think, you know, um, but there's such a fear to confront because if you, if you decide to go a little bit deeper and confront this version of yourself, what if you find an addict? What if you find an angry person? Uh, what if you find something that you don't like? Um, you know, and I think the Stoic would say, well, so be it. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not that that causes you stress. It's, it's the way you decide to react to it. Um, but I think for most of us, at least for me in my, in my journey, it's been, I'm afraid to, I'm afraid of the next layer deeper. What if I uncover something about myself that I was too afraid to know? And then I know, and now I know that I'm this, that, or the other. But every time I've gone a layer deeper, what I found is I actually like this person more, <laughs> uh, you know, than I thought. And I can, and, it, and I think that engenders self-compassion and self-awareness and self-love, which then almost automatically means that now I'm free at another layer of myself to extend that same compassion and love and inclusion to somebody else. Um, and so, but I think that's really the dance we're doing is that it's almost like, I almost like self-mastery is the wrong direction, you know? Um, because it's like the more you try to keep building a house of cards, you know, uh, or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, but it's that, I think that's what's scary is saying, I'm just, I'm going to be whatever I find here at this next layer, I'm going to accept, even if I don't like it and I'll, I'll work off from there, you know? Um, but it's frightening work. So how do you think about 
I mean, do you differentiate between accepting and acting on? Like if we think of any sort of desire example of what many traditions call like the root of suffering, whether it's desire to be liked or new car, et cetera, Mm -hmm. some of the stuff we were talking about, um, you know, how do you differentiate between accepting and, and also maybe around that going a, a layer deeper living with that question of like, why do I desire to be liked? Why am I desiring a new car, et cetera? I think this goes back to, we, we were talking about it earlier as well before the the podcast. Um, the, uh, the series I did a couple weeks ago on uh, anxiety, anger, curiosity, contemplation. Um, and that was based off of uh, this incredible talk given by uh, a teacher named uh, Pema Chodron, and she was basing her talk off of an eighth century wisdom text uh, by an Indian author, um, Shanti Deva. And at the core of this, though, is it's, is the idea, um, and I think it's the answer to what you're asking, if, if there is an answer, but kind of, a, a, you know, so, so, something something to respond with, maybe <laughs> more than the answer, but um, but is the idea of, of of curiosity. And so, I think that approaching life not as am i going to get it right or wrong but just out of out of curiosity about the next step and in a curiosity that this is laden with self-compassion like i'm curious about what i will learn about myself next and if i don't like it it's okay um you know and 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 i I don't think it's an accident that in a lot of the traditions that this idea comes from the idea of reincarnation and karma is like very prevalent because it gives you this sort of mental way that if you find something about yourself, you don't like, you can blame it on a past life or a past experience where you kind of didn't really have control over it and you're here to fix it. So it's okay. That's why you're here. Be kind to yourself. You know, this, this is, this is your purpose, your reason for being. Um, but I, in that curiosity though, you know, I, I think about like raising, raising my kids and it's, it is so inefficient to tell them over and over again, not like not to do so. Like, you know, if the, um, if they have a curiosity, like, why can't I touch this? Like, literally, this is happening. Why can't I touch the stove? It's like, well, because you're going to scream. It's going to, you know, you're going to get a burn. Like, uh, honestly, we're going to have to stop cooking dinner. And then we're going to have to get the ice. And then, like, also, I just don't want you to suffer because I, you know, love you more than life itself. Please don't make yourself suffer. Please don't do that, right? Um, but at, at some point, like, sometimes that works. And there's a mental connection. Oh, like, yeah, okay, I don't want to get burned. I've been burned before, right? But at some time, they're going to have to have that fundamental experience of what does it feel like to get burned. Um, and so at some point, if they're curious enough, they're going to make sure that I'm distracted or mom's distracted and that hand's going to touch it. And then, you know, the thing is going to happen and there's going to be the screaming and then, okay, dinner stops, the ice comes out or we have the conversation and all that. Um, but that lesson is so much more meaningful and actually that actually changed my child, right? Like, like that is a kind of like a very low grade trauma, like that just encoded into her psyche, <laughs> into her habits, into her body. I don't have to teach any of that, you know? And I do think that at some level, um, uh, you know, it's kind of like that. And if, if we can strip away maybe the, the, the normativity of it. So putting like an ethical layer over like, this is good, this is bad. That I think when you follow a curiosity, uh, you know, note, note how you feel. Like I really want, I really want someone to like me. Well, I'm really curious. What is my goal in that? Why, why do I want someone to like me? When I, when I say these things, like maybe a self-depreciating comment, or if I get anxious or if I get angry or however I react to it, does it get me what I want? Is that, am I achieving my goal? Um, why did I want this in the first place? Is something else missing? What was I hoping? What was I hoping I would feel like once this person finally affirmed me? Do I feel like that? I don't feel, why don't I feel like that? What, maybe where else in my life could I find it? And so that curiosity, it, it's a, just such a self-compassionate way, I think, to explore just very natural things. But a lot of times I think we're too afraid, you know, to actually even go there or we don't have the tools to ask the question. Um, and I think so much of my life was, was about conditioning. So it was do this because it's the right thing, do this because it's the right thing, do this because it's the right thing. And if you don't, there'll be punishment, there'll be consequences. Um, even if those consequences are you're, you won't be welcome here anymore. You won't be affirmed anymore. You won't be safe anymore. You know, like you won't, you don't belong here, even if it's just acceptance. There's always consequences for, and so many of the systems around us, whether they're religious or political or whatever, for questioning things and going that that, that level deeper. And so 
I just think that following that curiosity, I just don't think it's a bad thing at all. And so, yeah, maybe you think if I have the car, I will be happy. It's like that. I think that's a great question to be curious about. Get the car, right? And then sit in it. Am I happy? And maybe you are happy and maybe you're happy because it actually solves something for you. Maybe it, maybe it's not shallow. Like maybe there's actually some deep seated sense of personal worthiness that in purchasing the vehicle, you were actually able to like trust yourself to do something and you got it. And you're like, yes, you know, uh, or maybe you're like, oh, this was a complete waste of time. What am I actually looking for? But, but take the step, you know, um, because I think that there's, you're going to get feedback and it's going to take you a level deeper. And either way, regardless of what you find, you're going to be more compassionate on the other side of it. So, And I think it's unbelievably just fascinating to, to live in that way, to, to follow these questions and live with the questions and, and bring a, a heavy dose of curiosity. It can be a, a really fun way to live. We're pretty fascinating creatures. <laughs> And I think, I think it has a way too to sidestep some of our anger and anxiety, like obviously not all anger and anxiety, but I think a lot, at least personally, a lot of my anger and anxiety is just that it comes from a place of fear that I'm just afraid to be curious. Hmm. And in so many ways, the curious satiates whatever that underlying tension is, you know? Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's, that's been a fun thing to play with for the last couple of months. I'm super grateful for your time, Matt. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad we're able to connect and, and look forward to doing it again. We'll put in the show notes, um, you know, links to your newsletter and, uh, you know, links to find out more, more about you. But I appreciate you. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. This was so much fun. I always enjoy talking to you. I appreciate you inviting me on. Thank you for listening. I hope you found something useful. If you're interested in learning more, every Monday we share a short reflection with three timeless ideas to help you start your week with wisdom, you can subscribe at perennialleader.com. Until next time, be wise and be well.